Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott, and I'm the host. Today's very special episode is called Navigating Shame with Erica Nordfelt, Part 2. Welcome back to the podcast, Rami Umptum Ruminations. I have a special guest again this week. If you listened last week, I have Erica Nordfelt. We've got her back on the show. We're going to keep discussing the themes around sexual shame, trauma, and purity culture. If you want to get a more in-depth background of Erica, go and listen to the last week's episode. We talked about her time working at BYU-Idaho in the counseling department. We talked a little bit about her uh, feelings working there and some of the things that she noticed. This week, we're going to jump right back in and continue this discussion. So without further ado, Erica, welcome back to Ramiumptum Ruminations. Hi, I'm so glad to be back. So I, I forgot to mention in this intro, you no longer work for BYU-Idaho and you now um, operate with your husband, Greenstone Counseling. Any listeners from Rexburg or Pocatello, reach out to Greenstone Counseling and get the wonderful help from Erica and her team there. So thank you so, so much for coming back on. Yeah. So last week, we discussed a number of subjects, shame, guilt. We talked a little bit about working within the confines of the, the religious institution and how that kind of, in some aspects, would disagree with your approach. But at the same time, you, you said you tried to lean closely to what your client's needs were. And I think that was fascinating because I, I would have expected that to maybe be more difficult than the way you presented it. And so I think that's really cool. This week, I want to start off with, you had mentioned that your religious deconstruction had started while you're working at the BYU-Idaho Counseling Department. What was that like? We talked about maybe shame and guilt being the impetus or maybe some of the first things that you noticed that might have contributed to that. Help me get into your mind. Like, What's going on in Erica's head as you're working there? Uh, it, was, it was tough. There was a lot of emotional distress um, and not even maybe emotional distress that I was as much aware of that I would, I would just kind of feel heaviness or, or my own anxieties. And I definitely had a lot of cognitive thoughts of like, God, oh, this is really hard because I don't agree with this, but then I very much agree with this. And a lot of that juggling back and forth. And every once in a while, I think I would get this renewed, okay, I'm going to be the difference. I'm going to be the one that I, I hear this all the time now that I'm out, but we get this sense of like, I can, I can still find a home in this and not have to let go of the things I'm desperately trying to hold on to. And yet for a lot, most of my time at BYUI, I still was, I wasn't ready to let go. I wasn't at all to the point, even though I, looking back, it's like, oh, I was totally deconstructing, but I had a grip on the values that still meant most to me. And I wasn't ready to let them go. And especially for people in my situation, like we had four kids, <laughs> like not that kids make it, no, I, I think kids make it harder. I guess I will say that. They complicate things. They definitely complicate things. Yeah, we've been teaching them from this lens for so long that it's like, well, how do I how do I shift that? And then if I take that away, then like, what's left? Like, I have to do it all by myself? That's terrifying. How old was your oldest at the time? So by the time we finally 
And we talked to our kids probably about 10 months before we officially left the left church because my husband was still on campus. So we couldn't really officially leave until we had a plan for what he was going to do employment wise, which sucked. That was the worst because a huge internal conflict. I've got questions that I want to ask, but I'll save it for when <sighs> I bring, bring him on because okay. I think that would be okay. that would be really hard. Yeah. And, and, and when authenticity is really important to me, I felt like a sham or really, I, t- I laugh. I was like, I was just closeted. I mean, I wasn't gay, but I was closeted <laughs> and I had to make my home there. So my son was 15. He was our oldest when we, we finally told our kids. Um, so yeah, that's a long time of Mormon parenting. <laughs> it was interesting because even though it was hard for me, counseling also gave me so much empowerment and like being able to work with people. It was like, I felt more invested to be that change because it was like, Oh, and so it was kind of a lot of juggling, but then <sighs> over time, really bunting up against this, like, do I really believe this? Like, is it really true for me? And when the doctrine crumbled, which was after I left campus, when it really was starting to crumble, that it was like, oh, there was nothing left to stand. Before your, you ended employment with BYU-Idaho, your deconstruction was more focused on like cultural aspects of the LDS faith and not so much in the doctrinal stuff or help, help me understand what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say cultural and emotional, <laughs> even though I don't know if those are separate or different, but it was like, I was focusing so much on how human emotions and human, like these people in the church that I work with or not, like it was friends. It was in my family. Like I felt like there was trauma happening, like this spiritual trauma that was so hurtful, um, that that was a big part of my focus of like, I'm just not going to stand for this anymore. Like if we preach love, we need to be more loving. And if we preach Christ, we need to be more Christ-like. And yet then the scriptures sometimes disagree with that too. You know, like all those, those contradicting things, Yeah, <laughs> but I wasn't as, as focused on the real deep rhetoric and doctrine. And I never was like, I was always emotionally connected to my own spiritual place in, in the church. Like I'm just an emotion. I'm far more emotional than I am intellectual. That was part of my focus. And maybe that's why I was able to hold on so long. Cause I didn't really challenge the doctrine as much. For, for, a, for a long, long time. So then the process was accelerated once you left. You feel like you didn't have the, uh, you didn't have the institution tying you yeah. to the church and you, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to understand. No, you're doing good. Cause I think you're under like, or, or at least you're sensing. Yes. that. and it was, uh, so when I left campus, I went to private work and that it was a huge like wave of, Oh my gosh, I can be me as a professional, which w- was was hugely like now I could practice in line with how, and I don't have to feel uncomfortable about it. I don't feel like I have to be secret. Like I can be more direct with how I want to practice therapy. And that opened, I think more pathways of like, and I can kind of just be me. Like I can let myself be me. And, and I always had that support in my home, like with my children, with my husband, but I was starting to feel more freedom to do and be that in all spaces because you know, I didn't have anything else that was somewhat oppressing aside from going to church. <laughs> so church, church was still hard, still hard to keep going, even though I was at some point still very invested, like, cause you go and that's what you're supposed to do. And I wasn't ready to change that. I was, I think a little afraid of like, if I take out this routine, I don't know if I'm going to, cause I'm not good at routine all by myself. And, and then maybe we won't have anything left. 
a word you keep saying that keeps coming up and both last week and this week was authenticity. And it really resonates with me because one of the first things I noticed, and this was well early on in my own religious deconstruction, is I had read the, the book, The Catcher in the Rye. And the main character, Holden Caulfield, he refers to everybody that he meets as phony. And um, he's kind of observing a fakeness in the world around him. And after I read that book, I could not unsee the fakeness <laughs> that I saw in the church. Yeah. And it was a real struggle for me for a long time. So as you're describing this, like I'm not many people have touched on this as, as like an aspect of, of what they've noticed or like what was kind of troubling to them in the church. And that this was one that I, I definitely had as well. Big time, big time. Like I, I know I said last time, like I was hungry for it, but I really like, there was like this yearning and aching. And I think for me, it's because, you know, when you go into therapy, we're stripping down everything. And I, I was privilege because I really do feel like it's an honor to do the work I do to be able to really see the honest stories of humans and 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 then coming back into somewhat these other environments where it's like we're some seemingly honest and we're seemingly sharing our stories but we're not because I know people aren't talking to their bishops I know they're not talking to their their family or their partners <laughs> they're pretending there's so much pretending yeah and it was yeah. so pervasive that it it just broke my heart because I was like that's also just maximizing the suffering that's already going on like suffering already happens but when we're pretending it just compounds it more I'm not the licensed therapist here. Would you say that a real connection of like between people is important for humans? Yes. And so this is a lot in Brene Brown's work too, which again, people go check her out. She's amazing. <laughs> but she says, empathy is the pathway to connection. And in order to really empathize with each other, we have to be vulnerable. We have to be truly ourselves. Now, not everyone deserves that vulnerability all the time, but far more people deserve it. And the more we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable, the more we actually are thrust into those situations where we can create better connection. Not always. Sometimes we get, <laughs> we get kicked in the face, but that's, that's somewhat the price of vulnerability of still showing up honestly, even though it doesn't always work out. So yeah, 110%, I would say. So let's jump into this. We, uh, some of the themes that we want to talk about, as we said, you know, the sexual shame, trauma, and purity culture. So let's, let's start with purity culture. What is purity culture and how, how did you observe this in your practice? Yeah. And I was not as prepared. I know there's really good academic definitions of what purity culture is. We're just having a conversation. Don't, don't sweat it. I'm not the academic people. I do have like numbers and letters after my names, but I don't know. I'm just a person. <laughs> so um, this actually is something that exists and it's definitely not isolated to just Mormonism, but a lot of Orthodox high demand or conservative religions experience purity culture. And it, it arised from abstinence teaching of like, we're going to abstain from sex and we're going to tell all the teens and teach them all about it. And there was like this big craze. I think it was like early nineties of let's do um, like the purity rings and the promises and like, you know, the purity revivals and this, like, I don't think Mormonism was as, as strong in this like wave, but it was saying the same things. Yeah. I had Christian friends in high school with purity rings. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's somewhat making this commitment that we're going to remain pure, <sighs> but <laughs> it has a whole lot of <laughs> negative like elements that are residual from that because if I'm pure and this is pure, then that means everything else is dirty and unpure or unclean. And that shows up 
differently for males versus females and, and how those messages were delivered, but it is very damaging. And, and in the way I talk about it, I think it's a form of, of, well, there's a lot of sexual shame, but it can also be a sexual trauma. It's not sexual trauma, maybe in the way everyone thinks sexual trauma is, you know, it's not an abusive situation, but it is abusive messaging over time that can become traumatic. And so that's when we're talking about purity culture, it's that, that it's, it's about being pure. It's about being clean. It's about being abstinent. And then all of the overflow that that creates into how we feel about our bodies, how we feel about our partners, how we feel about dating, um, even into marriages. I feel like this, I mean, and I'll get to that point, but it does not, it's not isolated in the teen years, but it definitely can start leading up to that. One of the things that I've observed, and, and please correct me if if I'm 100% off on this, but the I don't I don't think there's anything inherently wrong about someone making a decision to be abstinent or someone saying I want to live my life this way. The problems that I've seen in some of like in the people that I've um, interacted with, it's when their life comes to a point where maybe that decision they made 10 years ago doesn't work for them anymore, and they're not in a place where they can renegotiate. A decision from their past mm. and bumping into this sort of a problem where in on itself, you know, abstinence is not, a, not an issue. I mean, if someone decides to that, but you can't impose that on another human being. Yeah. I, am I making any sense? Am I totally, or am I 100% off on this? No, no, no. I think that's on. And I'd say even more than that, like, and I said this again last time that it's not just abstinence from actual penetrative sex. There's a subtext of its abstinence from all sexual thought, all sexual urges, all sexual ideas, all sexual desires. So that's far more pervasive in a human body because we can't choose when we feel aroused or when sexual thoughts can just pop up. So it, it becomes far more of an issue for the human to somewhat say you can't be sexual because it, it becomes a more broad blanket of sexual sexuality as a whole. But when with what you're saying, I imagine too, it doesn't provide any place for a pivoting of like, okay, I'm making a value-based choice of, of how I show up and what I'm making decisions upon with, within this, you know, maybe sexual topic. And that might be different at different places in my life. I'm giving myself permission to maybe have those differences, those ideas, and then for that to maybe evolve. I really like the word evolve because <laughs> we just do, we evolve versus no, like now this feels different, but now I'm shaming myself from the past or, or I can't choose this now, even though it feels like different or right for me. We're talking about this purity culture and, and the way this impacts um, youth and even adults well into their, their lives. How does this purity culture and the shame around it impact the development of, of a human being? Okay, I'll give you, there's a really good article called The Naked People in My iPad or My iPod. This is an old one way back. And I think it might have even been on some of the church websites or something. And it was so refreshing. He was just, he was discussing a situation. I'm giving this as an example, as an alternative where, you know, a kid comes across a naked person <laughs> and, and in that moment, you know, let's say this kid is like 12, you know, prepubescent, but getting there and seeing something he's never seen before or she, and they have these reactions to it and their body is feeling a certain way and they don't know what to do, but they have had these messages that it's bad, which they internalize like I'm bad for feeling it, but I'm also interested in it and that's bad. And so it's like spinning. 
And, and then they become secretive because they feel shame that they can't actually talk about it. And yet the secrecy perpetuates some of the interest and the curiosity and that that happens in a private space. They're not getting any more information. And yet the shame is still showing up. Like I'm still interested and maybe I'm looking into this, but I'm horrible because that's what I've been told. I shouldn't be doing this. This is bad. So that's one alternative. The other is maybe, well, and if the first one, maybe they tried to reach out to a parent and the parent shuts that down big time. Don't look at that stuff. That's horrible. You shouldn't, you know, kind of they're shaming the kid. A better alternative. So this happens, the kid has these ideas, it has these impulses, and they talk to an adult and the adult's like, well, how did that feel? What was your body feeling like? Oh, well, maybe it's feeling a little bit warm here. I was feeling a little, you know, jittery here. Okay. Well, that's, that's what bodies do. Like that's what bodies do around certain things. And that's pretty normal. Like what are the thoughts were you having? Well, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is kind of interesting stuff and be able to guide a conversation and then add like, Okay, well, what are you, what, what do you think about this? What do you think you should do with this? Like, what are your values around this? Instead of just going off of a messaging that is, again, either more abstinence or, or resistant based of like giving them the power to choose of like, okay, my body is just a body doing body things. And maybe I can learn how to kind of make decisions as well as I have a safe person to talk to because they aren't mad at me or shaming me. Like it's okay to just be me and for all of these things to happen in my body. Like, whew, very different. And I'm giving extremes. Okay. <laughs> there can be so many varieties, but that second example is a far healthier sexual development example so that they can, again, make value-based decisions, whatever those values are. Um, and when I actually do a lot of values work with clients for all sorts of different reasons, but when I say value work, it's like, okay, I want you to put aside whatever values you've been told you're supposed to have. And let's do some work around figuring out what values really are motivating and moving you already, but helping the child decide, okay, like, what do I want for me here? What do I not want for me here? And, and how can I process that maybe with a supportive person, hopefully, that allows me to normalize my sexuality and, and be okay. <laughs> you mentioned values work and that's something that my wife and I have done in our mixed faith marriage after having to redefine what our values are as a yeah. couple and the direction that we want to go with our family. I just want to, you know, for the listeners out there, plug it, go look into value work. It is values work is important people. <laughs> it is so good. It is so good in our experience. We could see that even though our beliefs were dramatically different, we had some core values that were exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And we expressed those and we kind of experienced those values differently, but they were the same values. Yeah. And even if in a mixed faith room or any relationship, if they are not the same values, they can be compatible. You know, and I've done that work with my husband. I think, you know, my top three and his top three are not the same words. But they complement and they're compatible enough that that helps us to reinvest with like, okay, this is what's important for us as a couple or us as a family. And this is what, you know, choices or decisions we're going to make based on that. This is just popping into my head. I, uh, <laughs> I might cut it, but there's a movie that came out recently. I'm a big movie guy. I love the movies. I know. I love all your movie recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I plugged it a couple weeks ago. Was it The Whale? Yes. Did you watch The Whale? 
I wanted to, and I, it's so funny, just this morning I was listening, I guess, to your most recent episode, and when you were talking about it, I didn't realize it had like religious themes to it and religious trauma. And so I'm like doubly wanting to go. Like I was almost going to be like, I want to go tonight. Like, Brady, let's go. <laughs> no, I went into it not knowing that any of those themes were part of the movie. I just knew that Brendan Fraser had just like the, a knockout performance. I knew that it was going to be an emotional journey. And like this, even that, just those two items, like check the boxes of something that I want to watch. Yes, totally. And I get in there and I'm watching it and it's just like ripping me to shreds. Although my experience wasn't exactly what his was, but there was so much overlap to the emotions that I felt. And yeah. Even if someone doesn't have anything to do with the LGBTQ plus community, there are so many emotions that he goes through in that movie that even just a human being will have felt. And yeah. it's just, it's so powerful. Yeah. But it's right along with these subjects that we're discussing. And it's, uh, it's an emotional, an emotional ride. Anyway, just going to plug it again. Listeners go watch it, but it's, it's kind of hard to sit through. It's, uh, well, I oddly like that kind of stuff. So I, I like too. emotional rides. <laughs> it's my favorite. Sometimes my husband's like, oh, I can't go with you on this one. Like I got to pace myself. But I'm like, yeah, this is great. I want to cry. <laughs> no, but it's, it's sad. It's about reconnecting with family. And also you experience this guy's last moments of life. Watching it, like I, my, my interactions with my depression and things they didn't ex express themselves exactly the same, but I could relate so well with how he's unable to cope. And then he's leaning to something that does give him joy or anyway, it's, it's an amazing movie. And so I think that kind of um, shame perpetuates compulsive behavior, you know, and that can leak back into whether it's sexual compulsive behavior or not. It could be shopping. It could be gaming. It's like, that was his coping method of choice. That wasn't, it was compulsive and it's out of control. And that's not, mental health coping well you know that's not us at our best mental health skills but it serves something to help the person survive and get through that's why they continue to do it over and over and over again anyway sorry to derail for a sec ah, can... <laughs> that's good i love it i'm so excited to see it as you're working with people and you're treating them with their i'm going to use air quotes problems around their sexuality or any sort of addiction or problem that they might come to you with how are you helping these people and maybe looking more back into your time as your your counselor at BYU Idaho someone comes to you with with an issue hey i am addicted to pornography again air quotes on addicted mm -hmm. what's what's your process how are you working with with an individual like this and that process has changed over time. Like the way I, I deal with it now is very different than what I did. I would love to get uh, a glimpse of what it used to be and then what it has evolved to now. Back and this, the church also has a, a 12 step program that kind of is similar to AA and other 12 step programs to help people through this. And a lot of that, though, those type of approaches are like, okay, let's be aware of what our triggers are. Let's, let's have different coping methods to replace these coping methods. Let's like kind of work on the emotional coping. Um, and that was somewhat of the approach of like, okay, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. It, it maybe works for a time, but it doesn't help with really the compulsive behavior decreasing because there's such a fixation. And this is actually a pretty good mental health concept in general is what we, what our brains want to do is focus in on stopping something. But it is that exact focus of stopping something that perpetuates it forward. So if I'm thinking, okay, I just want to be not, I don't want to be anxious. I need to stop being anxious and stop thinking these things and stop, 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 stop. Well, all I'm doing and feeling is thinking all of those same things because I'm putting so much, like 
the concept of not thinking really isn't far off from thinking, you know, because of how the brain focuses in on things. So with those approaches, when it comes to like compulsive behavior, it's not working as well because just stopping it, like, I don't know if you've seen, there's a classic old SNL skit um, on therapy where a person comes in and I can't remember what the actor's name is, but he's like, okay, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the treatment and it's going to be simple and then you'll be better. And you're ready. And she's like, yep. Okay. I'm ready. I'm so excited. And he goes, just stop it. Just stop it. She's like, well, but I can't. He's like, stop it. Just stop it. And, and it's funny and comical, but sometimes we're still saying and doing the same thing, but it actually isn't helpful therapy because the brain needs to learn different pathways to be able to tolerate the distress. So let's use the example of, yeah, we're going to say out of control sexual behavior that I have this desire to think about something or look at something and the distress around that is so high, I actually have to engage instead of getting better at tolerating that distress. Yet though, the distress is going to maintain a certain level of heightened struggle if they're, if we're not normalizing what's going on in the body. So what I used to do was far more of like, okay, you know, the coping methods and let's give you other coping methods that are better. But now I first, I start out with normalizing a whole lot of sexuality and I give them a lot more sexual education about like what's normal in the body and why that's okay and why that's actually really healthy for us. And, and then um, mindfulness is a fantastic concept in all aspects of mental health. And, you know, if your listeners don't know a whole lot about this, it's about being present, paying attention to the present moment um, and being able to be aware of what's showing up for you without judging it. And that's far easier said than done, but being able to be better at, okay, I'm noticing these desires in me, but I'm trying to be mindful and aware of them. And, and, that allows me to actually make enough space for them that they're not running the show or they're not taking over. Um, that takes a whole lot of practice though. I recall as I, I've started meditative practices in my life and some of the early times meditating, it's, you know, you meditate because you want to feel happy. But as I got better at it and as I understood what meditation really was, it's more meditating to feel what's happening inside me and just to be aware of everything, you know, yeah. just stopping breathing and just feeling it's kind of a, like a, a mentality shift of kind of what you're saying. It's like you're just aware of what's going on inside of you. And what it does is it decreases suffering. It doesn't eliminate suffering. Again, that's that brain that's like, I just want it to go away. Um, but mindfulness can help us to decrease suffering, which allows us to tolerate things and to either manage or cope or be like, you know, go on with regular life stuff better. So, but here's the kicker, you know, doing all that work um, and, and still people existing in the really ultra orthodox religious frame, it wasn't decreasing behavior. And so the something else that I do in addition, I mean, it's going back to what we talked about before is values work so that you can start with a fresh slate about what is okay and what is not okay for me in this situation. And, and be able to make, again, value-based decisions, but do it from a place that is, this is a value that's guiding my behavior here instead of this supposed value I'm supposed to have, and I'm supposed to do it this way. And I'll be honest, for a lot of people, 
Well, I'll just give you an example of that. So working with a gentleman, really enjoyed working with him. And, and that was the presenting concern of like, okay, I, yeah, too much porn masturbation. And I want to decrease that. And as we worked and we worked for a considerable amount of time, but he got to a place where he was able to be like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to be more intentional about my sexual imagery usage. And, and there were some, some types of sexual imagery or pornography that he was like, Ooh, I could tell that was like out of line with who I want to be. You know, maybe it was more controlling to women or something like that. I can't remember what it exactly was, but he was trying to tune in enough to himself to be like, I know that that wasn't good for me, but then maybe there's this other content that I actually feel okay with, that I feel more comfortable with. And the behavior decreased. <laughs> it maybe didn't eliminate, but it would decrease because there's there's somewhat of an empowerment. If I can make my choices, um, I'm trying to align myself with my own integrity. That's what I call like when we do value work and we're showing up in line with those values. That's what I call integrity. Brene Brown echoes that in some ways. So I've got that power. I've got that choice. I can make those decisions and and that actually allows people to normalize a lot and not shame themselves as much when they do make some decisions or choices around that. That's a hard one to say though. Cause I know there's a lot of people that's like, no, like there's, you know, don't tell me to go do it and I'll decrease doing it. Okay. <laughs> I won't, <laughs> but that's kind of what shows up. You mentioned in, in our last chat that part of the allure, at least for some people is the fact that it's taboo. Perhaps taking away that taboo element is something that decreases their usage. It's the same thing with food. I would say the same but different. I give this comparison a lot. Consider that you grow up in a house where sugar is like not okay. No sugar. Don't think about it. Don't look at it. Don't smell it. And you grow up in this environment. And then you go to a friend's house and it's like, oh my gosh, I tasted sugar. <laughs> and it was incredible. Like my whole body responded to sugar. And it was so fantastic. And and then I went home, but I can't talk about it. So that secrecy and secrecy actually, um, like it breeds shame, Brene Brown says. So I've got the secrecy about it. And all I can do is, is think about sugar and I just want more sugar. And how can I get more sugar? And so I'm sneaking over to my friend's house or I'm going to the store or I've got it under my bed. And I have a really kind of morphed relationship with sugar. And sugar is part of life and it's part of living. But I never learned how to develop a healthy relationship versus Okay, I grew up in a home, and I shouldn't say just growing up. I don't want to like blame family systems. It's probably it's far more than that, but it's just useful for the example. Well, they're interconnected. You know, family systems are influenced and guided by the religious structures that we come from, and so yes. there's kind of an exchange happening there. Yeah, they're not totally isolated, but I want to. I can see people be like, ah, you know, I'm either blaming it all on my family or I'm the family to blame, and and it's not as simple as that. But someone grows up in a system or they learn that, okay, sugar exists and, and it's something that I can be intentional about and I can be aware of how it feels in my body, but I'm trying to make intention-based decisions. And that actually doesn't contribute to a whole lot of compulsive problems around it because it's just kind of normal. Like sugar exists and sometimes it feels really nice and tastes delicious, but I can't <laughs> do it all the time. And I'm trying to like make good value-based decisions around that. Well, I don't want to put like all of these are kind of um, generalities. They definitely are situations and, and people's stories that are going to be different. I know you speak to that a lot in your podcast, but in general, like 
the toxicity of purity culture can hit men versus women differently with women. And there's also so many great people that are speaking to this, a really great voices out there. A lot of them are therapists. You know, what's funny. <laughs> okay. I've got this little theory that there is a huge <laughs> wave of people pushing against purity culture and they're all women. <laughs> that women aren't standing for this anymore. But I, I could give you a long list of names in, and a lot of them mostly are therapists that are either into church or not that are trying to kind of create a different rhetoric around this. There's an LDS therapist that my wife follows, uh, Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She's definitely amazing. And she's done some of her courses. And that's definitely kind of uh, the way she approaches gender and sexuality is very similar to the way you're discussing it. Yeah, she's fantastic. So I'll throw out some other names just in case listeners want to know. So there's Jennifer Finlayson Fife, which is so hard to say. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's Kristen Hodgson. There is um, Julie Hanks. There is Natasha Helfer. Um, and I'm sure there's other ones that I'm forgetting. But these people, they're trying to create new rhetoric. And some of them are still in the church and some of them maybe not, or it's completely irrelevant. But they're trying to create safer places for people to experience their sexuality and enter into relationships with better sexual, like just experiences. Because with women, it's like, like, shut it down. We're just supposed to be the gentle and nice. There isn't really a space for a woman to be gentle and nice and also sexual or even sexy. <laughs> um, and so, of course, that's going to bring in its own shame if a girl is feeling those things or wanting to feel those things or maybe in a marriage and doesn't know how to do any of that or has shut so much of that down, they can't find a place for desire within their marriage if they are intimate. And that can also create a pervasive judgment of women and their bodies and modesty and dressing. And I know this isn't a brand new thing, but it contributes to that. And it's, it's very damaging. I feel like this is where a lot of the trauma shows up for women. Like I hear girls that, that go, you know, they're on campus and this <laughs> old professor said something about what they were wearing and they feel so offended and sexualized and it's inappropriate. And yet they're grappling with their own sense of self and it can be really, really painful and completely inappropriate, not to mention, <laughs> but that's coming from this idea of like, okay, people are supposedly supposed to help others make good choices. And so I'm, I'm supposed to help them know how to be better. I don't know. And so so that's really difficult for women. And again, there's far more. This, that could be its own whole podcast. And it is in many other spaces in the internet right now. Um, but with men, it's, it's complex that there can be like, what is masculinity? And what is masculinity in relationship to sexuality? And um, also, <laughs> just libido in general. Men have, wait, well, I guess it's easier to say the other. Women have 10% of the libido that men have. Um, or 10% of testosterone, not libido. They have 10% of the testosterone, which definitely shows up in libido and sex drive. And yet we're maybe in a relationship where we're thinking that's supposed to be balanced. Not that women can't have desire and have a high sex drive. They totally can, but they have it for different reasons. And there's different things that are either arousing or stimulating for women versus men. So with sexual development, there's a lot of those ideas of like, what is a strong man and what is masculinity and how am I supposed to be in a relationship? 
um, as well as possibly if they do have a high libido, like all these thoughts and these urges are showing up and yet I'm supposed to shut that down. And uh, the shame that shows up around that. And I mean, that's, I see that sexual trauma so much and it's the shame. It's the shame. That's the trauma. It's not really the behavior. What you're describing are thoughts that I've had for as long, as far back as I can remember. I didn't, I never identified, at least personally, with the an alpha male or overly masculine version of what a man should be. And I always felt like there was something wrong with me because of it. And maybe this is getting a little too personal, but no, it's great. I um, love personal. <laughs> <laughs> I have always been a very emotional person and I cry in all the movies, even the dumb kid ones, you know. <laughs> I have so much empathy for other human beings that it just expresses itself. I cry at everything, mm -hmm. just about everything. And I never saw an adult male figure in my life that ever did that. And I felt like there was something wrong with me that I, I wasn't the same type of man that I'm seeing portrayed on TV or portrayed in the books that I'm reading. And so what you're saying is exactly the thoughts that I had as a young man trying to figure out okay, what is a man su supposed to be and how do I fit into that paradigm? Anymore, I just, you know, I'm just me and this is how I am. Yes. And, and I get yes. to define what a man looks yes. like in my life and kind of empowering myself to, to create that definition. Yeah, that's so awesome. And I will say, I feel like in general, our society is getting better. Like the fact that we even know that it's a somewhat generally used term of toxic masculinity is a sign of improvement that we're getting better at that. But if you look at that, you know, that, that they're getting these messages of this is what a man is. And this is also what a man looks like in a relationship. And this is what a woman is. And she's supposed to be submissive and gentle. At its worst, it actually contributes to rape culture. And so it can be really dangerous in the worst of circumstances because it's perpetuating how people are supposed to show up or not show up. So another part that I would see a lot coming into the therapy office is it's like, okay, so I mean, and this is just the classic, my husband has a pornography problem. Like, how do we deal with this? And how can we make it go away? And so he's still dealing with the same shame storm, but now it's compounded because maybe he has a wife or children and it's like, you know, the stakes are higher. So he's going to be maybe shaming himself even more and possibly getting shame from his wife or not. Because I'll be honest, a lot of partners I've worked with are really trying to be empathetic and understanding. Um, something though that a partner, a female partner can struggle with is like, okay, now I have to take it on myself or I need to be more sexual or I need to be more sexy or not, but I'm just not good enough because he's going to the porn instead of me. And that just can spiral with its own struggle within a relationship. And, and again, more trauma, <laughs> more trauma, more layers of suffering that are just so unfortunate. When does something become trauma? So we've talked about shame. We've talked about guilt. We've talked about, you know, pornography addictions and how that can affect relationships within these high demand, um, high demand religious institutions. When does something become trauma and what is trauma? That's such a good question. And that's a question that's probably been answered a lot differently over the decades, even within the therapy profession. They used to actually not see trauma at all until, it's funny, this makes me sound way more on top of things. I just recently read a book that it was talking about PTSD wasn't even a diagnosis until like the early 80s because it was after really? Vietnam War. Yeah. And so, and that was a huge part of learning like, 
okay, that's a traumatic response. That's not shell shocked or they just can't get their stuff together. Like it's their body is reacting to the stimulus as if it's dangerous. So now we have PTSD, but there's other diagnoses that still aren't necessarily in our diagnostic manual. But there's CPTSD, which is called complex um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is more of small traumatic events over a period of time. This happens a lot in abusive relationships. Um, and even just like emotionally abusive relationships, that the same trauma responses can show up in the victim's body and the way that they are responding to things um, over time, just as much as, as, as some of the bigger traumatic events are. And so what logs is trauma and what doesn't is a bad question for me because <laughs> I'm a trauma therapist and so much is trauma. That doesn't mean it's long lasting trauma, but if we know how trauma works in the brain, anytime something overly stressful happens, it pushes us into our feeling or our, our feeling brain. This is the flight, flight and freeze response. This is the part of the brain that's really only considering how to keep us safe, how to get us through things. At the same time that that's happening, though, it turns off the front part of the brain, which is the thinking part of the brain, so that things are bigger and more irrational, and we aren't able to think clearly. And that simple response happens all the time just with stress. Stress puts us into our, our feeling brain, puts us into fight, flight, or freeze, and um, we have to be able to ground ourselves and breathe to be able to obviously feel more calmly, but also think more clearly, that can happen all the time. Now, whether or not it's trauma is a matter of, I think, how stuck we get in those responses on how frequently it maybe is going to show up. Um, and I mean, there's so much more to explain about this because I also, I also do EMDR, which is a trauma approach that's it's pretty incredible. I'm not familiar with the acronym. Yes. Yeah, so EMDR is um, eye movement reprocessing. No, wait, EMD. Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Really long name. Like, And I won't get into much of what it is, but... That's okay. It bases on an idea of that there's certain beliefs that show up as response to trauma. And those beliefs continue to play out over and over and over in our minds. Um, so an example could be, like, okay, maybe I was abused when I was young and I feel like I'm unsafe. And so I'm going to continue to feel like I'm unsafe in either real or perceived situations. Maybe I'm not unsafe, but I still feel like I'm unsafe. And that can perpetuate that belief over and over again. And I'm still responding as if I'm unsafe throughout my life. And that would be a form of trauma. Um, but it wouldn't have to always be like an overly... <sighs> chaotic or traumatic event that happens, that that could happen in smaller and subtle ways. So like, I see almost everything as trauma. But again, <laughs> my lens is that in my therapy practice. Um, and not all of it is maybe debilitating or not all of it is maybe limiting, but it still might show up in our responses of what causes stress. You know, I'm still experiencing stress around a certain, certain thing, and I can handle it. But that response that it's stressful is sourcing from its own place. Does that make sense at all? <laughs> it might have been a more complex question than I anticipated. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. It's, some of those things are really hard to abbreviate. That it's like, ooh, that's its own episode just for the definition. But 
I just want to add that I think we're getting better at understanding trauma, which is a good thing. It's, it's helpful for all humans. Decades ago, we wouldn't have been able to have this conversation around spirituality and think that that's a traumatic thing for people. And we're understanding it more. So well, this has been a wonderful chat. I am so glad that you gave me some of your time. I feel like we just barely scratched the surface of so many of these different themes. Was there any any overall thoughts or any maybe big impressions or, or last remarks that you wanted to say on the subject of sexual shame, trauma, and purity culture? I will add just one thing, just so that I know that it's spoken to, that for for LGBTQ individuals, all of this is compound. <laughs> you know, it doesn't have to be anything about sexual identity or orientation or even gender orientation for there to be trauma. But when that is also in the mix, it is just going to create so much more complexity around that. So I'm just speaking to those individuals that I know like this and more so can show up for, for their lives and their stories that are also valid and real. And, and, you know, that's, that's a real pain. That's a, yeah, I got a lot of love for those individuals. A lot, a lot of love. Many of my listeners will will appreciate those uh, those words. And I know that so many people will have loved this chat. So this has been a pleasure to have you on. Did you want to plug one more time your... So Greenstone Counseling, we're in Rexburg and we're in Pocatello. Um, we serve a lot of trauma or anxiety or depression, do a lot of work around faith deconstruction, mixed faith couples, and other couples work in general. So we see almost everything, but there are some things that seem to be coming our way more. And we love that. We open that. And we also are looking for therapists in both of those areas. So if you know you or someone you know are interested and are licensed in Idaho in, in a clinical setting, um, let us know. Uh, we're at greenstonecounseling.com is the website or greenstonecounseling at gmail.com is our web or our email. Well, thank you so much, Erica. This has been a wonderful chat. I just am so appreciative of the knowledge that you brought to the table for this discussion. Yeah, it was it was a joy. I hope it was um, digestible. I get long-winded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this was great. Thank you so much for coming on, Erica. Yeah, no problem. Have me back anytime. This concludes my chat with Erica Nordfeld from Greenstone Counseling. This was a pleasure, and I will definitely take her up on the offer to bring her back on the show down the road. We'll just have to think of a great discussion idea, and we can go from there. Today we covered some really important topics that I, I hope will resonate with the listener and, um, and give some of the listeners a jumping off point for some people to reach out to or some such as Brene Brown. If you live in the Pocatello-Rexburg area and you are looking for a counselor, go look into Greenstone Counseling and Erica and her team over there will get you taken care of. Erica brings such a unique perspective to the discussion around the LDS faith. Working at BYU-Idaho, she has a unique perspective on the struggles of the students at the school there. So for the listeners that, that want to support Erica, you can find her counseling at Greenstone Counseling. But she's also published a book. The book is called Don't Walk Alone, Understanding the Divine Gift of Connection While Navigating Shame. In this book, it talks a lot about the things that we discussed a little bit in this episode, shame and shame resiliency, and some tools for overall mental health and, and fostering better connection. You can find it on Amazon or her, through her publisher, cedarfort.com. So 
wherever you find yourself out there. Just finishing up with a social interaction where you were being extremely kind and friendly and you have reached your limit and now you're unmasking and just breathing for a moment. I hope you have an excellent day. <laughs>